been going through the holy history. The theme for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of these events that took place with Israel in the Old Testament are not just history, they're his story. It's God's interaction and intervention in human history. God's plan to bring the whole earth to himself, to bring all the people of the earth to be a part of his kingdom. So we're continuing in our series. We've been in this series the entire year. Well, not the entire year, but uh, pretty much since uh, March. We've been walking through the Old Testament, not uh, verse by verse, but uh, story by story, I guess you could say, and character by character. And uh, the overarching theme is found in the New Testament, and that's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And it says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction. That's why we have the Old Testament. It was written down for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So my hope is that this is giving you a good framework uh, for the Old Testament as we walk through the history of Israel, and uh, also that it's helping you to understand that when you read those stories, they're not just stories. I was talking to uh, the youth today, for just a brief moment, Dean asked me a question, and I probably talked too long, didn't I, Julie? Jubilee? <laughs> no? Well, you're so nice. In any event, um, and uh, my hope is, is that we instill these ideas in them so that they realize that this is not just a story like Lord of the Rings, Right? It's not just a story like a comic book story or comic book characters like DC or Marvel. These were actual people. These are actual historical events. There's archaeological evidence to back this up. Uh, you know, that's not something that I talked about this morning, but we have archaeology. You can go to the Holy Land and you can, and they do. Archaeologists dig this stuff up and voila, there it is, exactly what they were talking about. Um, and I could go into details in, the, in regard to that. But for instance, crucifixion, all right? One of the clearest uh, historical uh, points that we have in the life of Jesus is that he was indeed crucified. And you know, they have dug up remains of individuals who were crucified by the Romans, and one individual had a nail through his heel. And presumably, they wanted to, they, they wanted to reuse these nails but it, what it appears is that this nail was bent and they couldn't get it out of his heel bone. So he was just buried as, you know, as it was with the, the nail stuck in his heel. And then, you know, hundreds of years later, a couple of thousand years later, they dig up his bones and there's that heel with the nail sticking through the heel just exactly the way Scripture teaches, just exactly the way we have uh, been taught and assumed that Jesus was crucified. So no, that's not Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead. But again, there's, there's historical evidence. These were real people. These are real incidents. This is not just storytelling so that we can, uh, you know, have a moral of the story, if you will. Uh, we are beholden to these things because they're teaching us what God intends for his people in all periods of time, not just the people of Israel uh, thousands of years ago. So today we come to 
Uh, last week, we, we looked at the end of the period of judges, and I asked, you, I asked you the question, who is your king? Because Israel wanted a king. So Samuel was the last judge, and as we saw, he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a judge. And uh, God told him, nope, I want you to give them what they want. And we examined the idea that sometimes we want certain things, and when God gives us what we want, we realize that that's really not what we needed or perhaps even wanted after all. And pretty soon the people of Israel would see that there were weaknesses to having a king. And the first king uh, in the history of Israel was a Benjamite. That means he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and his name was Saul. In fact, we think that Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, who wrote, most of the, well, about half of the New Testament, uh, was named after this first king because this Saul of Tarsus was also from the tribe of Benjamin. So although Saul, uh, as we're going to see next week, made uh, not, a, not a few mistakes, in fact, we're going to see his first one this week, uh, he was still highly regarded by the people of Israel. So we're going to look at King Saul this week. And the title of the message is what I want you to apply to your heart. And I want to get that out of the way at the beginning in case you... Uh, Stop paying attention. The title of the message is Don't Turn Away. There's a lot of people turning away from the Lord today. And we're going to look at the life of Saul, and we're going to see how he turned away. So uh, first, Saul was the example of what many people want in a leader. He was someone who looks good on the outside. He was tall. He was handsome. He was impressive. Listen to this from 1 Samuel 9.2, and this is where we get introduced to Saul and uh, Samuel anointing him. 1 Samuel 9.2 uh, talks about the, the man Kish, who was Saul's father, and it said he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Well, you know, it has been proven that people who are taller often get fitted to positions of leadership because we don't just look up at them metaphorically. We are literally looking up at them, and we anticipate that our leaders will be people we can look up to and see when they're ahead of us and follow them, right? Um, so then we go to chapter 10. First uh, Samuel. Now uh, Saul has uh, Samuel has told Saul, "Hey, you're going to be the next king." And he gathers all of Israel together. That is, Samuel gathers all of Israel together, and they're going to have the opportunity to meet their new king. And uh, <laughs> this is the interesting thing: um, Saul was rather humble um, at the outset. He was probably somewhat insecure because he didn't want the job. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you this. A lot of times, maybe most of the time, when God chooses leaders, he chooses people that didn't apply for the job, right? And Saul didn't apply for the job. He didn't say, hey, I hear you guys need a king. I think I would make a good king. If you're that person, then that's typically not the person that God is going to choose. So God chose Saul. He did have a degree of humility. Maybe, as I said, was pretty insecure, and when they're going to, when Samuel is going to introduce him to all of Israel, they couldn't find him. Now, bear in mind, this guy's a head taller than everybody else. You know, he's like Robert over here, Mr. Sweeney. So every time he walks in, I'm like, hey, Robert, how's the weather up there, bro? 
He's a head taller than everybody, and they're looking around for him, and they can't find him. Listen, you want a tall person with you at the fair, don't you? I know a bunch of you have gone to the fair, and you're walking around at the fair or Six Flags, and it's like you, you just lose everybody in the crowd, but if there's that tall person like, oh, yeah, there, there he is, you know. So they're looking all over the place for Saul. They can't find him. Listen to this. This is great. He was hiding among the baggage. He was hiding. This is the next king, the first king of Israel, and he was hiding. He was scared, all right? They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Man, he looked good. He was exactly what they were looking for. They wanted somebody that would stand in front of them and lead them into their battles and protect them. And so this is their guy. Well, initially, as I said, Saul was probably somewhat insecure, but he, but he was humble at the outset. Um, when uh, We're going to back up to chapter 9 again of 1 Samuel. And when Samuel is talking to Saul, he said to him, And who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? Listen to how Saul responded. Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjamite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? He was humble. Now, you know, not everybody would have, uh, would have been like this. Initially, Saul was not vindictive or power hungry either. He, uh, you know, he kind of held things in, in check. Uh, everybody was excited that this guy was going to be their king. And people would typically bring gifts to somebody like this. But at the end of chapter 10, 1 Samuel 10, 27, it says, but some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? That's, that's the Christian standard Bible. I like the way that it puts it. How can this guy save us? Sure, he's tall. Sure, he's handsome. But that doesn't mean he's a good warrior. How's he going to save us? And it says they despised him and did not bring him a gift. Now, Saul is suddenly given this power. Man, he could have had him punished. He could have had him hauled off. But listen to what it says. But Saul said nothing. Nope, not going to come up against him. At first, Saul was changed and empowered when God's spirit came upon him. In fact, it was even asked, is Saul among, or is Saul also among the prophets? So this is uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is before the incident where they, they got him from the baggage and introduced him to all Israel. He's still um, talking to Samuel about being chosen. When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about in that day. So there were a series of signs that Samuel gave to Saul because initially uh, Saul was looking for Samuel because he'd lost or they had lost his father's donkeys and they wanted to find the the prophet or the seer to see if they could ascertain where the donkeys were. And so Saul gave a series, excuse me, Samuel gave a series of signs. Among them was the donkeys have already been found. Don't worry about them. You're going to encounter a group of prophets and you're going to prophesy with them, right? All these signs happened. When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart and all the signs came about that day. 
When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, this is kind of his hometown, his home base, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, something you need to understand. Prophesying, we normally think of as preaching, okay? It's kind of a version of what I'm doing right now. I'm more teaching. But um, in this time period, right, it involved some sort of ecstatic movement, all right? Kind of reminds me of um, Shiloh during a worship service, right? He's just out there prophesying. The little dude is like moving his feet around. Well, apparently that's what these people did, right? There was a band of prophets and the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And I mean, they would move around probably in ways that you and I would not be comfortable with, but probably they'd be comfortable with in a Pentecostal church, right? Or a charismatic church because they were moving and grooving. In fact, they moved so, so, so powerfully that they would begin to, they would begin to perspire and begin to sweat. And that's what we're going to see uh, on another occasion during his reign. This is after Saul had been, uh, in power for some time. In fact, uh, we're going to look at, uh, this time period next week because it's, uh, this actual chapter that we're going to look at right now is the transition between Saul and, uh, David. Okay. And in the context here, what I'm about to read, um, Saul is looking for David, okay? So this is in 1 Samuel 19, 23, and 24. So he went to Nioth in Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Nioth in Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes, this would have been his outer garments, and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all day and all night. That is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So this is why this isn't just preaching. This is some sort of ecstatic affect, right? Um, That when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, this is why, uh, you know, it is, I don't know, for many people, if they go to a Pentecostal church and a Pentecostal service, they're very uncomfortable with what's going on there, right? And of course, you know, some of that can just be the persuasion of a group of people, right? A, a version of mass hysteria where everybody is, is jumping around and hollering and screaming and yelling so everybody else does. But there are also times I've been um, to a few services, more charismatic church-oriented services rather than Pentecostal, and have sensed an overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit. People respond differently to that, okay? Some people fall it's being in those uh, churches. It's called being slain in the spirit, right? They're, the the presence of the of the Holy Spirit is so overwhelming in that service that they fall. And there's when the charismatic movement, or excuse me, when the Pentecostal movement started uh, in Azusa Street in Los Angeles in the earlier part of the 20th century, there were so many things that were going on in that church on Azusa Street that it it became really somewhat of an embarrassment. Uh, for them among other churches because people would, people would cry and they would, they would yell and they would laugh and all of these sorts of things. When someone is overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord, it is not the Lord that's forcing them to do anything. Okay. 
So if someone is in one of those services and they, they you know, are quote-unquote slain in the spirit, you still have control over your body and your mind and your limbs, right? Uh, even someone who is, is uh, you know, the, the manifestation of the spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues, they still have control. You have, a, you have control over the volume knob. So people can respond variously. And I'm trying to help you to understand that that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with this overwhelming reaction. It's just like when those of you are, are in this church service and our amazing band is singing and the presence of the Spirit is here, you respond differently. Some of you stand up and raise your hands and, and you know, some of you are, are humbled and some of you sing loudly and some of you don't sing at all. You just sing quietly. You're responding to the presence of the Spirit. But the presence of the Spirit can be so overpowering at times that even someone like Saul, who gets in that service, if you will, among those prophets, is impacted as one of the prophets were, okay? So let's look at an application for this, okay? Because I don't know what your experience with these outpourings of the Holy Spirit have been. I don't know if you've been in the presence of the Lord to the degree that you felt overwhelmed, that you felt like you needed to fall to your knees or fall on your face or, you know, stand up and raise your hands. I'm not, I'm not sure what your experience is, but I want you to understand something. Um, the Holy Spirit back then and even today comes upon someone and enables them to do something that he wants them to do. This is being clothed with the Spirit, right? All of the prophets were clothed with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. However, this is not the same as the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Where he remains in the heart of the believer and continues to counsel them and comfort them and guide them throughout their day. It's not the same thing. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's just not the same experience. So even those of you who have a relationship with Jesus and you genuinely have the Spirit within you, you still need to be empowered to do God's work. That's why Jesus breathed on the, that first little uh, band of disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was the first Sunday. Receive the Holy Spirit, right? Previously, he had said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be among you. Listen to what it says in John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. That's the Holy Spirit, paraclete. That's what that word means, or one of the interpretations of it. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But listen, you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. So when you come to a church service like this, you may sense the presence of the Holy Spirit or you may be so worldly and so distracted that you don't. But even before you're saved, the Lord can give you the ability, the sensitivity to know that the Spirit of God is present, and you can be emotionally moved by the Holy Spirit's presence. But that doesn't mean he's living in you. Not yet. 
Listen uh, to what the, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians. This is how I want you to understand that it is absolutely essential if you are a believer in Jesus, that you have the indwelling presence of the Spirit because that's how you are um, reborn. That's how you are transformed. The Spirit of God comes inside you. We say in your heart. That's the, the core of your being. And he transforms you from the inside out. He gives you a new birth. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, it's not in human language His spirit moves upon your spirit, and you may be able to give that words or you may not be able to give that words, right? But it is an essential sign. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, whatever your profession is, whatever you would say about yourself, you're not a Christian, not in the biblical sense, until the Holy Spirit gets there. So some time ago, uh, during the run-up to the 2016 election, there were a lot of these uh, conservatives that were talking about uh, Republicans who were not really Republicans in their estimation, and they called them rhinos, Republican in name only. See, I think there's a lot of crinos out there, Christian in name only, right? Nominative Christians, They're only a Christian in name. You have to have the Holy Spirit or you're not a Christian, no matter what your confession is, no matter what your history is, no matter what experiences you've had. This is Ephesians 1, 13, uh, the end of 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul writes, when you believed, you were marked in him, that is in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You have to have the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is made available to you right now because of what Jesus did on that cross. He removes the impediment, the barrier. See, sin is what keeps the Spirit of God, keeps the the, the, the holy God of the universe from dwelling with you, from occupying the same space as you. Um, I'm sure there are people in your life that you're, you just don't like, right? Are there people in your life that you don't like? Are there people in your life that you just can't stand being around? Oh, there were some big yeses there. Now, maybe because they have certain habits that you don't like, all right? I don't, I don't judge anybody, condemn anybody that, that, that smokes, okay? But I have a hard time being around people that smoke because my dad smoked a lot when I was a kid. He used to smoke unfiltered Pall Mall cigarettes with the windows rolled up in the car. Yeah, okay? And it's just, I just don't like how that smells, right? I just don't like it. Now, if you've got that habit, I'm not judging you. Please don't think that. that. I'm just trying to help you to understand this idea of, you know, someone... Or perhaps this is someone who, who used to smoke and they quit smoking and their reaction is the opposite. When they get around someone that's smoking, it makes them want to smoke so they can't be around that person. They just can't, right? So there's two instances where I'm trying to help you to understand that you know there's someone you don't like or you don't want to be around, you can't be around. Listen, God cannot be in the presence of sin. So how can he be within us when we're sinners? Because of what Jesus did on the cross because Jesus paid the penalty for sin, right? And so that permits God to send his spirit 
to live within us and abide with us rather than this temporary empowering that we see with Saul. Um, listen to what Jesus said in John 7, 39. He was talking about, um, he was talking about the, this living water that overflows in someone. And the living water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When did the Holy Spirit drop from heaven on all of the believers? Acts chapter 2, right after Jesus ascended to heaven. He ascended and he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came down and, and appeared in a visible way as tongues of fire on the heads of these people. And they began to speak in other tongues. And all of the people that were present who were paying attention heard God's glory being proclaimed in their own native language. So there were, there were miracles that were occurring as a result of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was enabling these people to speak in a language that they didn't understand, an unknown language, and was enabling people who came from various parts of the world to hear it in their own language. So if you don't sense the presence of the Holy Spirit, ask. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. You've got to want this. You've got to put your faith in Jesus, but you've got to want this. You've got to open up your heart and invite him to come in. That's why we say Jesus in your heart. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus in your heart. So you may have been to a church service and just felt overwhelmed. Lots of emotions. Maybe you, you know, you've been to some sort of an event or service or whatever where, you know, you just, you know, you fell down or, you know, you... You just were so overwhelmed you didn't know what to do or, you know, who knows what. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit came inside you. It's a different experience, and it's an abiding experience. I'm not talking about temporary feel-good or our responses to the Spirit. I'm talking about an abiding, remaining presence. Saul did not have that. In fact, at this time, nobody had that. The Spirit would be with someone who he was empowering, right? He would, you know, overwhelm them, enable them, empower them to do what they were called to do. But this is not what Saul had. And I want you to see this because I see this with many people today in all sorts of church traditions. But um, it is evident oftentimes in church traditions where people have had these baptism of the, the Holy Spirit experiences, as they would call it, and then they turn away. I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. I've been baptized in the Spirit. Five years later, they don't believe in God at all, much less Jesus. How, how can that happen? See, when the Holy Spirit comes inside and seals you for eternal life, he utterly transforms you. When something happens to you on the outside, the outside changes all the time. Your emotions are up and down and in and out and all around Satan uses emotions to manipulate people all the time, okay? Well, next in the life of Saul, he disobeyed the Lord, and he turned away from following the Lord. He disobeyed and turned away from following the Lord. So this incident is found in 1 Samuel 15. 
uh, listen to the Lord speaking to Samuel after Saul's failure. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Well, Samuel didn't want Saul to be king to begin with. But this is what I told you last week. You cannot thwart the will of God. God is going to get his will done. He gave the people a king. He knew that this was going to be something that was going to be a problem, but he gave them what they wanted anyway. But see, God experiences things right down alongside of us, and he sees now something he foresaw and foreknew, but now he experiences alongside the people this failure of Saul to carry out his instructions. Well, what is that all about? Let's let's find out what uh, what he did, okay? Um, he disobeyed the Lord and did his own thing. He was told to go into a battle with this group of people called the Amalekites and to utterly wipe them out and also to destroy all of the plunder. They, they were to take none of the sheep, none of the cattle. They were just to wipe it all out. Now, that's very troubling, but we're going to get to why God does things like that in just one moment, all right? Just know this. He was supposed to wipe them out completely, but he didn't. This is for 1 Samuel 15, 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep the oxen, the more valuable animals, the lambs, and everything that was good and were unwilling to destroy them completely. But everything despicable and weak, that they completely destroyed. You know what this is like? See, being devoted to destruction meant you were utterly giving it over to the Lord. This is kind of like when someone wants to give an offering to the Lord, right? They want to give a gift to the Lord. Do you give your first and your best or do you give the leftovers? What is God deserving of, right? Well, they took the best for themselves. Now, we're going to see in a moment that they were, they were saying that this was because they were going to offer it to the Lord in another location. Um, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice Samuel calls God his God? No, he says... Saul says to Samuel, to the Lord, your God. This is something he says again and again, and it seems to indicate to me that there was a separation between Saul and God. He did not have an active relationship or even commitment to God. He was simply serving because Samuel told him that the Lord had chosen him, and he said, okay, I'll go along with what you say but he calls God the Lord your God, right? This is a very important verse. This is 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. This is what Samuel replied to Saul about this purported uh, plan to offer the best to the Lord as a sacrifice. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, To obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Wow, I really like that. That's the Christian Standard Bible. To pay attention. Are you paying attention? 
to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Whoa. Something going on here. Well, let's look at this idea just very briefly of God commanding his people to just utterly wipe out this other group of people. It's difficult to understand why the Lord would do something like that until you like that, until you realize how evil the people in the land of Canaan were. Now, we don't have a bunch of children here like we did the last time I was going to bring this up. So now I'm going to tell you, okay? When archaeologist Catherine Kenyon excavated Jericho, for example, she found decapitated babies, which were likely offered as sacrifices to pagan gods. A Canaanite high place was excavated near the city of Gezer in Israel, and child sacrifice was discovered there as well. Babies had been burned and the remains placed in jars. Two children's bodies were found to have been sawn in half. They found the skulls of children with part of the spine still attached, meaning that they had been decapitated. These were exceedingly wicked people. They killed and they practiced child sacrifice. Wow. I bet you can make an application to our world today, but I won't get into that. Well, this is how I'm helping you understand that God chose to wipe these people out because they were utterly wicked. Well, Saul had begun to rely on himself instead of God. He'd become confident in himself rather than continuing to have confidence in the Lord. See, he started off very humble. He probably had, you know, what we would have called back in the 70s an inferiority complex. But, you know, he kind of figures, you know, I am the man. And I've had some victories now, and I'm the king, and I'm going to do things my way. So that's what he started to do. Samuel continued. This is 1 Samuel 15, 17. He's talking to Saul. Although you, were, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Verse 19. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Well, Saul started doing things his way. He started turning away from the Lord and turning in toward himself, right? And he honored himself rather than the Lord. In fact, in this very incident, he actually set up a monument to himself. This sounds like politicians in our day, doesn't it? Right? And there are certain politicians that has a bunch of buildings with his name on it. I don't know. Anyway, Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was reported to Samuel saying, Saul, uh, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself then turned and proceeded toward Gilgal. So Saul went from pleasing the Lord to pleasing the people. See, in the end, he just wanted the people to like him. He'd been afraid of them to begin with, and now, if his word is to be believed, and I think it should be, um, he was pressured by the people to take the best of the spoil. Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 15, 24, and also verse 30. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I violated the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people, and I listened to their voice. 
And then verse 30 of 1 Samuel 15. Then Saul said, I have sinned, but please now honor me before the elders of my people and before all Israel. Go back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And we'll look at, perhaps we'll look at that incident in more detail later. But I want to transition to application very quickly. Um, in the wake of one of the most powerful monarchs in history, uh, King Louis XIV of France, Louis XIV, right? A, a statement was made in regard to his reign. Power corrupts. Can you finish it? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Privilege, position, power, and prosperity will all corrupt people who fail or refuse to acknowledge and obey the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow. And yet what happens is we're happy to receive the gifts. Thank you, Lord. You made me king. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my children. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And then we start looking to the gifts more than we look to the giver. We start valuing the gifts more than we value the giver. And that, my friend, is called worship. This is what people do. It's in us. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 1, and 22. For although they knew God, they knew God. They were aware of his existence. This is human beings. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And then it goes on to say that they turned away to these images that were made after animals and humans and so forth, okay? That's it. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They started just looking at the gifts, the externals. Well, I want to end with some application questions, but I want to make one observation that perhaps Saul never really committed himself fully to the Lord to begin with. He went along with Samuel, but he was the Lord his God. No, as I indicated, he was always saying the Lord your God to Samuel. Folks, there's a lot of us that have been in church for a while, and that's right where we're at. You've heard all these words. You know the language of Zion. This is all worn smooth in your hearing. But I wonder, have you ever established your own relationship with Almighty God? Is his spirit living within you? Or would it be said of you what the Apostle Paul said of some in his day in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Well, that's, that's good. The Lord, your God, and all that Christian stuff, and yeah, I've been raised in church, and I believe all that, but it's always arm's length for you. Or have you opened your heart and embraced the Lord? Here, here are my application questions very quickly. Have you turned away from following Jesus? Maybe you did follow Jesus at one point in your journey, your life's journey. And this can be a subtle spiritual drift. You just sort of get your eyes off uh, the Lord. You start, you know, uh, a lot of you in this room, those of you watching, you may have a lot of obligations. Uh, you may may have a, a, a lot going on, a lot on your plate, as they like to say. And, you know, we can just get our eyes on that and get our eyes off of the Lord. And so we, we 
we subtly drift away from the Lord. Or sometimes there can be a, a, a sudden falling away from the Lord. There can be a subtle drift away from the Lord, and you look back and where's Jesus? Or there can be a sudden falling away, and we see that in our day as well because of cultural shifts, because of personal tragedy in your life, and you don't think that the Lord should have permitted that to happen. There can be all sorts of reasons that people apostatize, but we see it a lot today. Is it you? Next question, do you primarily depend on yourself or on God? See, that's where we get the subtle spiritual drift. Initially, when you're in a position where you have needs that you can't meet, you have financial needs that you can't meet, you've got someone that you love in your life and they're estranged from you and you you have no way of getting them to come back to you and you cry out to the Lord day and night, you have an addiction and you have no way of overcoming that and you know you have no way of overcoming that, so you cry out from the, to the Lord. Man, that's where the Lord wants you. You wonder why these things have come into your life? That's why the Lord has allowed these things into your life. Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor or poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom because it's only when you're poor or poor in spirit that you realize that you need God. When you got everything going your way, I don't need God. I got this, right? So what happens is when God gives us these gifts, we start relying on those. No, we start relying on ourselves, right? Well, I worked hard for this. I deserve it. Yeah, but God gave you your health. God gave you the opportunities. Yes, you have to, you know, you have to work hard. You have to do those things, but don't discount the fact that the Lord gave you the ability to do those things. Now, next question. Are you pretending to be a Christian? Is your faith just fake? Hmm. There's that having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Next question or observation here. The power of God comes through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, okay? So I I indicated very strongly to you earlier that without the Holy Spirit, you don't have a relationship with God. You're, You're not a Christian, but the power to live your life, and we're in a an age where things are getting increasingly difficult, People are, are having panic attacks and suffering from great depression and confusion. All of these things are happening. Well, the power of God comes through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you refuse to give him control and let him fill you, then you're left to yourself and your limited abilities. And even those of you that are the strongest people still have limited capabilities. This is why so many people are anxious, frustrated, weary, overwhelmed, their lives may be out of control. Even many who appear to be successful and happy on the outside may be angry, afraid, sad, even suicidal on the inside. You don't know what's going on behind those eyes. There are people that are just good socially, and they can make you think everything's all right, but that doesn't mean everything's all right. They may be hurting. That's why we need to love everybody and pray for everybody, amen? Now, you may be somebody that wears your emotions on your sleeve and, you know, you get frustrated and you show it. You get mad and you show it. You get sad and you show it. You're depressed and you show it, right? Some people are not like that. We don't always know what's going on. Some Someone may appear to be very successful on the outside. They've got the money. They've got the house. They've got the spouse. They've got the kids. They've got the whatever you think that they should have to be successful. But that doesn't mean they've got it all together on the inside. 
I'm telling you, we are in an age now where you need the Holy Spirit more than we've ever needed the Holy Spirit to get through life, just to get through. So once again, I made the case. There's no authentic Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. We were not meant to live apart from constant communion with God. That's what was going on in the garden, right? Temptation, all these sorts of things. But God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day because he wanted to have fellowship with his people, with Adam and with Eve, right? But when they sinned, they separated themselves from God and they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They hid themselves. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 9. He said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You need Christ within you. So now another question, has your heart been corrupted by our culture? Are you compelled by popular opinion rather than Christ? Saul was a people pleaser. Who do you seek to please? See, some of us are naturally that way. Some of, some of you, and a lot of people that come to this church are like this, are contrarians. I ain't going to please anybody. No, I ain't going to do that. In fact, you'll do the opposite just because everybody is doing that. But some of us are more people pleasers. We just want to get along. Can't we all get along? We just want everything to be copacetic, right? And we're the ones that are the most likely to be pulled into uh, particular behaviors or values because the people around us are doing the same thing, Okay. Have you ever really committed your life to Jesus Christ or have you just been living in presumption? Presumption is fake faith, right? Presumption is, of course, of course I'm a Christian pastor. I I was on the cradle roll. I've been raised in church. I grew up in church. I come from a Christian family. I was raised in a Christian home. I go to church, don't I? But that doesn't mean you've ever committed your life personally to Jesus. It's not become your God. It's always the Lord, the God of the Baptists or the Pentecostals or the Lord your God, the God of the preacher that's teaching me or the God of my parents. It's not your personal relationship with him. So finally, turn your life over to Jesus now. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ Or maybe the Spirit of God has convicted you today that you need to finally establish your own relationship with Jesus. Call out to him. That's what the Scripture says. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why we pray that sinner's prayer. Really, the only big sinner's prayer in the Bible is just a few words. It was a man who was broken down. He was at the back of the synagogue. He couldn't even look up toward heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a sinner's prayer. Now, I often, not as often as I used to, but lead people through a prayer like we did last week when we had so many people here, where I lead them to affirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And we affirm that, and we affirm that we want him to lead us, to be our Lord, to be our King, to be our Master. That's what you do in prayer. That's the sinner's prayer. But it's faith that saves you, not words that a preacher led you to pray in a church service. So turn to Jesus now. Call on his name. Put your faith in him. 
and you'll see things change. Open yourself up and allow the Holy Spirit to overpower and overwhelm you and live life through you, and then you'll have the power to live life. Amen?